Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm joined as always by Avi Cooper and Tony Brew. Hey, guys. Hey, Hannah. Good to see you. Hope you both are staying warm. It's uh, in the negatives here in Columbus, which is colder than I like it. It's a balmy 27 in Boston. Oh, it's like 30 in Seattle. I'd, so I'd be in shorts <laughs> right Time now. Time to move to the West Coast. <laughs> of course, people are panicking. Um, all right. So, you know, often on the show, we talk about a lot of upbeat and lighthearted topics like the weather um, or why cilantro t- tastes like soap or whether Thanksgiving turkey really makes you sleepy. We wanted to say up front that this episode is going to touch on a difficult topic and that one that might not be appropriate for younger or more sensitive listeners. We're going to talk about the drug thalidomide and its history, why it's a teratogen, how it caused birth defects in thousands of babies in the 1950s and 1960s. So Avi, to introduce us to the episode, what got you interested in the topic? Why thalidomide? I think thalidomide is a really powerful, compelling, and as you said, Hannah, tragic story that's also really complicated. There's lots of layers. We're going to touch on embryology, corporate hubris, misleading marketing, heroism at the FDA, and also how thalidomide, it's had something of a clinical renaissance in recent decades. And so we try to tell stories like this on the podcast where we can sort of weave different strands together about history and biology and medicine. I think this is one that's worth telling. You know, it sounds like we're going to go to a lot of different directions on this episode, and we could probably start with any of those different pieces, but it might be best to just simply start with just reminding the listeners or telling them if they've never heard, like, how and when thalidomide was first developed, when it was introduced, like maybe a little bit of background. It kind of seems unfathomable now, but it's a pretty bold strategy to just say that this is a, a cure-all with zero side effects for a medication, especially during pregnancy. So thalidomide was first developed in 1952 as a sedative and an antiemetic, so sort of tr- to treat nausea. And it actually, it at first was thought to be inert because the early experiments seemed to show that maybe there were actually zero effects in animals. And so it got shuffled around from different drug companies while they were sort of sorting out what it what it might do, if anything. And eventually, it was found to have perhaps some benefit for nausea and mer- morning sickness in the first trimester of pregnancy. And then it hit the market and was available in the late 1950s. It was specifically marketed for use in pregnancy, where it was basically said to be completely safe and a cure-all also, in addition to more treating you know, nausea and morning sickness, a cure-all for things like headaches, insomnia, and cold, sort of just a, like a general good thing to take. And so, and amazingly enough, it was thalidomide was available over the counter at first, and it went by at least 37 different names worldwide. I think two that come up in ads a lot, um, when you look back at some of those you know, older ads from the 50s and 60s, was um, Contergan and Distaval. It's a pretty bold marketing strategy. It feels almost uh, unthinkable now to just come out and say this medication has zero side effects, in, in, especially in pregnancy. You're absolutely right. And there was so much confidence about thalidomide's safety in pregnancy that one ad that I saw even claimed, and now this is a direct quote, distaval can be given with complete safety to pregnant women and nursing mothers without adverse effect on mother or child. Like That was just in an ad out in the world. What's also remarkable is if it has all these positive effects, it's doing something to the body. So the idea that it's actually doing something to mitigate nausea, colds, insomnia, and headaches, but it's also at the same time inert, that like those two things can't necessarily coexist. But as a result of this marketing, 
potentially, you know, a lot of pregnant women started using thalidomide in the late, in the late 50s and early 60s. Is, is that right, Avi? Is that kind of what happened? Yeah. And at first, no one noticed that something was wrong. But then Australian physician named William McBride realized that thalidomide was probably profoundly teratogenic. And he wrote this really short, concise, but hugely impactful letter to The Lancet in 1961, where he said that in the preceding months, he had observed multiple instances where babies were born with severe congenital abnormalities, particularly of the hands, the arms, and the legs. And there was this sort of striking pattern of underdeveloped and shortened long bones, such as like the femur and the radius, which is called focomelia. And in every instance, the mother of the babies born with these focomelia effects had used thalidomide as a sedative or an antiemetic during the pregnancy. And so he basically just asked in this letter if any other clinicians had witnessed these effects. And then not long after that publication, you know, the drug manufacturers sort of began to withdraw um, thalidomide from the market because its, teratogen- its teratogenicity started to become crystal clear. But again, the drug had been on the market with this aggressive advertising for pregnant for use in pregnancy for five years before McBride's letter was published. And so there were over 10,000 children across the world who were born with these congenital malformations, which were directly attributable to thalidomide embryopathy. Though interestingly, as we'll discuss later in the episode, American babies um, seem to have been spared. This episode is sponsored by Audible. In addition to great content, like The Curious Clinicians, Audible has thousands of podcasts from popular favorites to exclusive new series, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, comedy, and exclusive Audible originals from top celebrities, renowned experts, and exciting new voices in audio. Audible lets you enjoy all of your audio entertainment in one easy-to-use app. You'll find voices that motivate to spark you to take action, personalities that encourage and enlighten so that you'll have a partner on your journey. I really enjoyed listening to one of the Audible titles um, that I found on there. Actually, that was recommended by my wife. It was called Quiet by Susan Cain. And I really enjoyed that audiobook. I felt like it helped me understand myself um, a little bit better as someone who's sort of an extroverted introvert. Highly recommend the listening experience on Audible. And one of the things I love is that I own the titles I select on Audible. This allows me to come back to them whenever I choose to. And one book, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, is a fascinating review of the evolution of morality. And it's one of these examples of a, of a title that I just come back to over and over and over again. Another title I love to revisit is the entire Sherlock Holmes series, read by the remarkable Stephen Fry. The title includes more than 60 hours of Holmes mysteries. It is absolutely fantastic having this at my fingertips anytime I'm in the mood. Audible members can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. With the app, you can listen anywhere as it's all in one place, which is great if you're on the go or just relaxing at home or stranded on a road trip and in need of 60 hours of Sherlock Holmes content if you're Tony. New members can try Audible now free for 30 days using our own Curious Clinicians code. Visit audible.com slash TCCPOD or text TCCPOD to 500-500. That's audible.com slash TCCPOD or text TCCPOD to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. 
So you mentioned the the long bone shortening or underdevelopment. What other congenital effects were caused by thalidomide? As startling as this is, thalidomide, it's so severely teratogenic that depending on the portion of the first trimester that a fetus is exposed to it, there'll be different effects that would arise, which essentially correlates to like whatever was developing at the time that thalidomide exposure occurred, that's what gets disrupted. So if exposure happens at day 21 or 22 post-conception, thumb aplasia might arise. Whereas if it's at 29 or day 30, then you might get disruption of leg development. But you know the main manifestations of thalidomide embryopathy are you know a lot of what um, uh, what William McBride had mentioned in his letter, um, which is limb development, but also congenital heart disease, ear and eye malformations, and then obviously you know like I said the focomelia. So that's really the those are sort of the hallmarks. So it sounds like depending on when the exposure is, you might see different effects. And and certainly the the ones that I recall hearing about were the, the effects on the long bones. So that you know, many of the children born in the 50s and 60s who had this exposure were born even without arms or had severely shortened legs. Have we learned in the subsequent years the mechanisms um, by which thalidomide is so toxic uh, to a developing fetus? Like what, what is happening to affect the embryologic growth? Yeah, there are three main theories, though. I think theory is an appropriate term to use here because I don't think it's known with absolute certainty how thalidomide causes embryopathy. And actually, a lot of this mechanistic science, it's only been worked out in the last few years. So some pretty fresh stuff. But the three theories are um, involving altered ubiquitin ligase function, oxidative stress on the embryo, and intrinsic anti-angiogenic effects. So ubiquitin, that feels very familiar to me from a very long time ago. (laughs) Can you tell us what ubiquitin ligase 1 does? Maybe a refresher? Yeah, and it probably makes sense to start with that mechanism since it has, I think, sort of overall the best supporting evidence and it links directly with focomelia. So as you said, Anna, we sort of need a quick biochemistry review that ubiquitin is a regulatory protein in cells that marks other proteins for degradation, sort of like a, a labeling function. So for ubiquitin for ubiquitination to proceed, there are three enzymatic steps that are required activation, conjugation, and ligation. The third ligation step involves ligating the ubiquitin to the protein that it's marking. And it uses, there's like bundles of proteins called the ubiquitin ligase complex. And that seems to be what thalidomide disrupts that third ligation phase. So a 2010 chick embryo experiment demonstrated that thalidomide binds to a ubiquitin ligase complex that plays an essential role in this process of, in the process specifically of limb growth by regulating regulating fibroblast growth factor expression. So basically, thalidomide, it binds to a protein in the complex called cerebellon. And the cerebellon, this binding blocks the ubiquitin ligase complexes function, like sort of be able to come together and like function correctly. And then that disrupts um, this fibroblast growth factor expression, and that disrupts the limb growth. That's the sort of the theory. And again, to sort of confirm this mechanism, the researchers tested in that same experiment, you know, what would happen when the chick embryos were made to express a form of cerebellon that can't bind to thalidomide. So thalidomide physically can't get onto the cerebellon and detach. And so with wild-type cerebellon, the chicks develop disrupted limb growth, just like humans do, but the chicks who had thalidomide-resistant cerebellon they didn't get any malformations in their limbs. So cerebellon and the ubiquitin ligase complex, they seem to be a 
sort of really primary mediators of how thalidomide harms embryos. So I had heard of ubiquitin, but hadn't really thought about it in a number of years. Cerebron is a totally new word to me. Um, I have just now heard it said more than I'll probably hear it again said in the next 20 years. But that, I think, in a nutshell, is cerebron and ubiquitin ligase and sort of how their function or dysfunction sort of relate to um, some of these developmental um, effects. What about these other two mechanisms? Which one do you want to tackle next? Yeah. So the second proposed mechanism involves oxidative stress. This explanation was like a little more nebulous to me, but it does seem that oxidative stress does play some role in this thalidomide embryopathy story. So by invoking oxidative stress, it, it, what we're really talking about is sort of free radical oxygen species being generated and then leading to DNA damage in the embryo. So there was a 1999 study in Nature that involved pregnant rabbits. And that experiment demonstrated first that thalidomide does readily generate reactive oxygen species and can therefore damage DNA. Um, and it's thought that this DNA damage leads to downregulation of limb growth signaling factors, which then disrupts limb development. In the same experiment, the researchers gave the rabbits a free radical trapping agent called PBN, which is short for alpha phenyl N-T-butyl nitrone, which uh, I'm not going to say again. Um, so, you know, PBN... Um, you know, basically their, their hypothesis was that if thalidomide causes embryopathy by DNA damage, then giving a free radical scavenger like PBN should prevent embryopathy. And actually, you know, that's exactly what they saw. Almost none of the rabbit embryos who were exposed to both thalidomide and PBN, if it happened together, almost none of those embryos got any sort of fetal malformation. Whereas those that got thalidomide without PBN about 40% of them um, had focomelia of some kind. Okay. So, so far we've talked about, just to kind of summarize, ubiquitin ligation and the fact that um, thalidomide is blocking the ubiquitin ligase from enabling the fibroblast growth factor expression, which presumably is needed for the fibroblast growth of the arms. We've talked about oxidative stress and the role of DNA damage in uh, in showing these limb effects. And then the last thing you mentioned was angiogenesis, which is interesting both from a hematologic and oncologic perspective. So I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah. And this, this was surprising to me that thalidomide um, appears to have anti-angiogenic effects, which it's probably disrupts limb growth by impacting blood supply development um, and you know and then subsequent again growth factor expression so that seems to be sort of the central theme and then therefore leading to congenital effects and especially focomelia and, and how does it do that yeah you know it turns out that thalidomide it blocks the expression of angiogenic factors particularly angiogenin which maybe is a little bit less well known than um, the other sort of big angiogenic factor out there which is vegf or vascular endothelial growth factor but you know they're both really important and you know one study i found from 2019 showed that thalidomide dramatically downregulated angiogenin expression in mice by almost threefold, which is, you know, it's a lot. I love that I have a new favorite indie uh, vascular growth hormone to, to call my own, angiogenin. Never heard of that one. Who knew? All right. <laughs> yeah. That and cerebellum. Get it on a t-shirt. It does remind me a little bit of one of the current uses of thalidomide, which is in uh, hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, or HHT, where thalidomide and other angiogenic inhibitors have been shown to decrease epistaxis and other 
bleeding from uh, arteriovenous malformations. Yeah, I mean, multiple case series have shown that thalidomide reduces epistaxis, you know, both like episodes of epistaxis and how severe they are in HHT, presumably because it's the very same mechanism and these impacts on vascular growth factors. And, you know, similarly, there was a um, a 2023 study just a, a few months ago in the New England Journal of Medicine that found that thalidomide dramatically reduced recurrent bleeding episodes in patients with small intestinal angiodysplasia. And actually, you know, and as someone who works in the intensive care unit, some people who have sort of like recurrent GI bleeds from, you know, from small intestinal angiodysplasia started to see patients be on thalidomide for this, for, for prevention. Interesting. And, you know, I think as a hematology and oncology fellow, other than HHT, the big place that we see a lot of patients on thalidomide and other imid uh, or immune modulating imide drugs is in myeloma and other plasma cell disorders. So lenalidomide and pomalidomide, but people still use thalidomide for myeloma, which, so I, I mean, there's so much there about the ways that this drug was marketed versus what it truly is useful for. And I think it just brings back to the like, how did this happen? Kind of coming back to the point of, there were clearly uh, several animal studies where embryopathy occurred after thalidomide, or at least now that we know that th this happened in these studies. So how was this drug marketed for pregnant women specifically? And how was it not tested before it was used in humans? This, it's a really bizarre part of the story. So thalidomide was tested in pregnant animals before becoming available to people. And it was tested in rats specifically. But for some mysterious reason that we only know now with the benefit of hindsight, rodents seem to be resistant to the effects of thalidomide and they don't develop embryopathy even if they're exposed. So if you give thalidomide to a pregnant mouse or rat, their pups won't develop any of the harmful effects that happen in seemingly every other mammal. But yeah, I didn't see a convincing explanation for this. But this difference between rats and humans gave the pharmaceutical industry and prescribing physicians a false sense of security regarding thalidomide and its supposed safety in pregnancy. There also seems to have been the mistaken belief at the time that thalidomide didn't cross the placenta. And so therefore, like if it can't cross the placenta, how could it harm a fetus or an embryo? And you know, in 1962, one of the founders of a group called the Teratology Society um, came out and said he doubted thalidomide was teratogenic because of these lack of effects in rats in preclinical testing. And this was even as clinical case reports of teratogenicity were emerging. So it's amazing the inertia that can happen. But one of the outcomes of this fiasco, this tragedy, was that there was a new industry standard to test the safety of new drugs in at least two different species, one of which cannot be a rodent. And that resulted directly from what happened with thalidomide. And then new regulatory legislation was put into place in the 1960s, mainly resulting from a public outcry that happened when all the effects of thalidomide were made known. And again, thinking back to that infamous Distaval ad that said it had zero effects, it was completely safe in pregnancy, it's remarkable how much of a role I think hubris and complacency played in the story. You know, and it's remarkable. I think we think of ourselves as scientists or people who administer a field built on science. And we've talked a couple of times on the podcast about times in which medical science has really been advanced, not so much by clinical trials, but by landmark cases. You know, we've talked about Libby Zion before. We've talked about some other landmark cases. It really seems like in this situation, there was a before thalidomide era and an after thalidomide era in terms of pharmaceutical regulation. This was a landmark case for the industry to wake up and realize that there needed to be greater regulation. 
So I feel grateful now that we're the beneficiaries of that. You mentioned earlier that American infants appear to have been spared from the effects of thalidomide embryopathy. Why did that happen? Yeah, simply. Yeah, I mean, simply put, this resulted from the heroism of a single individual. A single person at the Federal Drug Administration refused to approve thalidomide for use in the U.S. even when it was available in you know a number of different countries across the world. And so thalidomide wasn't available to Americans. And that person was Dr. Frances Kelsey, who actually um, died just in uh, 2015 at age 101. So she was a Canadian pharmacologist and physician, and she worked as a drug reviewer at the FDA in the early 1960s. And wouldn't you know, one of her first assignments was to review thalidomide, this new drug coming on the market. And she had a lot of concerns about the safety of the drug that it hadn't been adequately demonstrated by the drug sort of main manufacturer, um, a company called Grunenthal. And so, you know, in particular, she was alarmed by some early reports of neuropathy that had been associated with thalidomide. And she felt like if we're going to see, be seeing a signal with neuropathy, perhaps like we it, you know, it's clearly more biologically active than people thought. And so she felt like it, she really, she demanded that there be more studies to prove that the drug wasn't harmful during pregnancy. And apparently Grunenthal, um, they gave a lot of pressure on her to relent and to grant thalidomide approval in the U.S. so they could access the U.S. market. Um, but she stood her ground. Um, her supervisors at the FDA supported her. And then she, of course, she was pres- she was proved right, right? Once the, the first reports of limb defects came out, so she single-handedly saved thousands of American babies from this embryopathy. And um, rightly, she was recognized by President Kennedy a few years later when he awarded her the President's Award for um, Distinguished Federal Civilian Service. So, And actually, she was only the, um, the second woman ever to have received that award at the time. So the Curious Clinicians give a hats off to Francis Kelsey. It's interesting to put um, that experience in sort of the contemporary era because, you know, there are in theory, you know, tougher, more protective drug regulations now, greater demands on on drug companies following the thalidomide tragedy. And, you know, what happened with Dr. Kelsey highlights the impact that individuals at these regulatory agencies can have. But, uh, you know, in the current era, you think about Curtis Wright, who is the FDA officer assigned OxyContin and uh, assigned to review Purdue Pharma's submission. And, you know, in his case, he didn't have that same heroism that Francis Kelsey had and and ultimately signed the approval and then later became a consultant for Purdue Pharma. So, you know, the all of these drugs are sort of there's there are persons in the stories who are heroes, there's a lot of greed, there's a lot of hubris as you mentioned earlier. Um, and I think in the case of of Kelsey we're very lucky, in the case of um Curtis Wright uh quite unlucky. Yeah, it's amazing, you know, when you think about it, right? Like regulations have to be implemented by people. So, uh, you know, individuals very much matter um, when it comes to things like enforcement of these regulations. And it's re- also remarkable to think you to whose desk does a, a new drug approval land and, you know, how much that ultimately matters in the end. Uh, you wouldn't think that a single desk <laughs> would matter that much necessarily. And, and apparently um, at the time, you know, the FTA was a pretty small operation and um, there were only seven review, like full-time reviewers. So oh, wow. Dr. Dr. Kelsey was one of seven and one of her first cases was, you know, um, thalidomide. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a, it's a remarkable story in terms of the history, in terms of how it's shaped 
pretty much every way that we think about approving drugs now in a lot of in a lot of just even hearing the story. And it's also really remarkable physiologically, like to think about the way that this drug can be so pleiotrophic that it it treats multiple myeloma, right? And that's probably the right use for it, but that it had these side effects that were initially deemed to, to sort of be the primary effects of it. I mean, it's it's just a, a fascinating story. Avi, thank you for bringing it to us and letting us learn from the history of it. Can you give us your take-home points? Yeah, yeah. And more than 10,000 babies experienced thalidomide embryopathy in the 1950s and 1960s. Most prominently, um, they had disruption of uh, limb development called phocomilia, but there were other manifestations as well. The main proposed mechanisms are disrupted ubiquitin ligase function, which affects growth factor expression, as well as oxidative stress and anti-angiogenic effects. And actually, um, thalidomide's anti-angiogenic effects have clinical relevance today with use in prevention of bleeding from disorders like um, hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, small intestinal angiodysplasia, and then um, also in treating multiple myeloma. Finally, you know, the missteps in preclinical testing and uh, regulatory oversight that allowed thalidomide to be used in pregnancy led to a new and safer era in pharmaceutical drug development. And Hannah, as you said, in a way that we almost can't imagine what it's like to live in a world where we aren't protected from things like this happening, but you know, it all happened because of thalidomide. And one last point before we wrap up, wanted to again plug Tony's new substack called Origin Stories. If you like the types of questions we answer here on The Curious Clinicians, you'll definitely want to check that out and subscribe. You can find Origin Stories at tonybrew.substack.com. Thanks, Avi. That wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thanks as always for joining us. Claire Morgan of notterly.com is our audio editor, and Giancarlo Bonomo is our producer. You can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. You can subscribe to our Substack at TheCuriousClinicians.Substack.com. Physicians and other healthcare professionals can earn CME and MOC credits from BCU Health just for listening to this episode. So for more information, visit ce.bcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.